Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today on the show, we're going to be going over a lot of the stories of the past week that all focus on some aspect or another of public relations and of the importance of trust. This is slightly different from some of the deep dives that I've been going through with the past few episodes, but obviously, there are only a finite number of fundamentals to explore, and it's also very important to actually apply those fundamentals to the various news stories that we see in the day. Nevertheless, you're still going to get the type of deep, long-term analysis that I like to do with all of my episodes. The only difference is that they're going to be applied to certain things that still do demonstrate a lot of those long-term effects behind every single news story. So, the first news story that I'm going to be talking about is an extension of something that I talked about in my news episode with regards to the situation in Canada with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the WE Charity. So a recap for those who either don't remember or didn't listen to that episode, WE Charity gave speaking fees to various members of Trudeau's family, all but one of which occurred after Trudeau became Prime Minister, and then later on, Trudeau gave a volunteer contract to the WE Charity that was worth almost $1 billion. Trudeau has stated publicly that he was aware of this conflict, however his team still came to the decision that the WE Charity was the best choice for the program. Now obviously there are various ethical landmines that we have to keep note of here, and we should be very clear, and we should be very clear that it's never okay to engage in this type of nepotism, to engage in what at least feels like an extreme case of self-dealing particularly in a country like Canada, where there are very high social standards with regards to anti-corruption. In the last week, both Trudeau and some key members of his cabinet, as well as the founders of the WE Charity, appeared before a federal committee where they were questioned on these various actions leading up to the volunteer program. While the content of those hearings mostly just reaffirmed things that were already reported on by various news sources confirming them to be true, what may be more noticeable is the things that this actually reveals with regards to the Canadian political system. The first major problem with the coverage of this hearing is the whataboutism that goes on, particularly with some MPs or members of parliament from the Liberal Party, that's the party of Justin Trudeau. Now, whataboutism is a strategy where they essentially respond to any attack or any criticism by claiming, either falsely or not, that it's something that the other party engages in as well. Of course, we have to be able to use a fine comb to actually think of these accusations and go through whether they're true or not. However, many media sources, trying to be fair, often picks up this line even when it's inaccurate. This is true with this particular scandal. Many defenders of the Liberal Party tried to accuse Stephen Harper, the previous Prime Minister of Canada, of engaging in similar scandals. While Harper did have various scandals and criticisms, we have to be able to judge the scale of various instances of corruption. All of this is publicly available information, and I'm just going to summarize it here. The main accusations against Harper's government was various personal finance problems with members of his cabinet and not Harper himself, where essentially these cabinet members took excess government money to pay for travel or to pay for other personal expenses. Now, this is a serious cabinet breach, and to my knowledge at least, all of those cabinet members were fired and possibly punished by the Ethics Committee. The only notable thing that was actually drawn to Stephen Harper himself was the violation of advertising limits. This means that he started campaigning either too early or by spending more money than was actually allowed in certain areas of advertising. Canada actually has very strict campaign finance laws, and this is just part of the culture of anti-corruption in Canada. 
Of course, these things absolutely should be enforced. They are definitely a negative indicator of what Stephen Harper has done, and they should be condemned and should be reported on. However, to compare this with the allegations against Trudeau, particularly the most recent ones, we do have to be able to understand things with the idea of scale, and we do have to be able to compare that to literally having family members receive payment, and then granting a volunteer contract to the same company that gave your family payments. These are two very different things, and it's very easy for a layperson to actually come to the conclusion when they're given this information themselves. Of course, the main problem here is that the media doesn't actually go in-depth into these accusations, either due to time issues or just due to ignorance, and all of this nuance is left out. Now moving forward, we have to consider two very important things, one with regards to government standards and anti-corruption, and two with regards to journalism. The first thing is that we have to be willing to criticize those who we otherwise support, those who we may have policy agreements with, but nonetheless, we should not be accepting of these standards no matter what party you're part of. The other thing that's important to keep note of is that you can't simply draw a comparison between two things, especially if you don't elaborate on the details. Just because various governments had scandals does not mean they're all the same, does not mean they should have the same punishment, and most importantly, you should not use whataboutism, you should not use the offhanded remark of, oh, there was a scandal in the past administration, in order to justify anything, as all of these things need to be looked at in detail, need to be compared, and when you do that, when you give the bare minimum amount of context, then you allow people to draw those conclusions, you allow people to get the full spectrum of information that they need, and that is something that is so important for an established democracy like Canada. The other thing to keep note of that's not really related to politics, but just something to have in mind going forward, is that we shouldn't let partisanship get in the way of investigating the WE charity. There was a lot of coverage that focused on the consequences to Justin Trudeau, with the various political goals of members on the questioning committee, such as one of the most aggressive interrogators, Pierre Polyev. And while this is important, while it is something vital to talk about the political ramifications of various news stories, we also shouldn't be distracted from what might be an even more important line of investigation, which is the corruption within We Charity itself. Of course, We Charity has had a history of aggressive attacks on press freedom, including lawsuits that are illegal in many of the provinces of Canada, including defamatory statements about journalism and journalism outlets, and even the personal harassment of individual journalists. All of this reeks of a cover-up, and there are almost certainly greater problems that we is hiding, otherwise they wouldn't actually have to undergo such measures to prevent more journalistic due diligence to prevent investigation. Moving south now, the next story is a very good case study, with the difficulties in public health and the circumstances that many public health officials face when trying to disseminate information. Of course, one of the most important components of public health is being able to establish that trust between the public and government institutions and being able to convince the public to follow certain health procedures when they need to, particularly in times of crises such as the coronavirus. This includes getting citizens to wear a mask and not to gather in ways that would greatly increase the risk of spreading the virus. However, there is a certain predicament in the United States because the United States does have a very high emphasis on various constitutional freedoms, they have an emphasis on civil liberties, including the freedom to protest, and citizens of the United States often have a very black and white interpretation of this. This means that many Americans view any sort of limitation on protests as something that would be threatening to their constitutional freedoms, 
instead of something that is necessary in a time such as the coronavirus where there are literally lives on the line. This is all important information to know when considering the next story. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the United States, was recently asked whether the Black Lives Matter protests increased the spread of coronavirus. He gave a very generalized answer that, quote-unquote, crowding together, especially when you're not wearing a mask, contributes to the spread of the virus. A congressman from the Republican Party following up tried to ask Dr. Fauci if those protests should be stopped due to spread of the coronavirus, which he said was not a decision that he would make, that was the decision of other government officials. Of course, it is a scientific fact that gathering in large crowds, such as in those Black Lives Matter protests, does increase the risk of spreading the coronavirus. And if possible, various other measures, including social distancing, wearing a mask, and making sure those protests stay outdoors, are incredibly important actions that have to be taken in order to control the spread of the virus. However, the reason a public health official, such as Dr. Fauci, cannot simply denounce those protests is that governments don't actually have the power to stop it. And if you give the appearance of a contradiction, if we say that we should stop the protests and they're not stopped, then citizens would be less likely to follow some of the other important health procedures that they need to in order to decrease the spread of the virus, including going to restaurants, going to businesses, etc. Because you can actually get more people to comply with those measures, it is something that absolutely should be undertaken. I'm sure that if public health officials were able to wave a magic wand, stop the protests, for at least for the duration of the coronavirus, then they absolutely would do it if they were focused on stopping the spread. It is such an important case in looking at the ramifications, especially when dealing with public relations, because as I said before, you need to establish that consistency, you need to establish that trust between the citizen and the government institutions, and when you promise to crack down on protests, particularly in an area such as the United States, which cannot actually be executed by the government, then that would actually create greater problems than what Anthony Fauci is trying to approach with now, where he simply says that while that does spread the coronavirus, that it's not actually in his control. Now, this does open things up to a broader conversation about the United States as a whole, however. As I talked about before, the US does have a more toxic political system and media system, and because of this, many Americans think of political issues in a very black and white way. This is epitomized by the slippery slope argument, which essentially argues that if a step is taken in one specific political direction, that eventually that'll lead to one more step in that direction, and that this will eventually result in an extreme outcome. This is why many Americans oppose stay-at-home orders or oppose restrictions on protests, because they believe that any step in order to restrict those things would result in the gradual erosion and complete loss of their personal freedoms. As I talked about before, this is a completely fallacious argument. There's been political steps and actions taken by the government in many of these situations and in many different countries that does not result in the ultimate erosion of freedoms. There, of course, needs to be contacts taken. Obviously, you're in a pandemic and there has to be restrictions in order to keep people safe. Every other developed country in the world understands this and many Americans understand it as well. However, it is an element in the American culture to make these fallacious slippery slope arguments that ultimately derail many productive solutions. One such solution is to enforce a mask mandate at protests. This means that if you show up to protest and you're not wearing a mask, then you'll be sent home. But as long as you do wear a mask, you're essentially free to do whatever you want as long as you're not breaking a law. This was actually a policy that was enforced in many areas of the world, where if people wanted to gather at protests, they absolutely had to be wearing a mask, otherwise they would be sent home. 
this would be an effective way to limit the spread of the coronavirus while still not limiting freedom of speech. It is my personal hope that eventually we'll completely do away with this fallacious slippery slope argument as it is completely ignorant of reality, is completely ignorant of how political systems actually work, it leads to further calcification within the public, and literally has cost thousands of lives. There will be no long-term erosion of civil rights because of mask restrictions at protests, because of mask mandates in general, because of stay-at-home orders or other lockdown measures, etc. People can understand when their democracy is actually being threatened and stand up in that case, and people can understand that the situation changes when there is a global pandemic. This simple fact seems to be something that various American officials are either oblivious to or are intentionally ignoring in order to manipulate the public. The next few stories I'm going to be covering all involve the general theme of postponing elections. In the first of these stories, President Donald Trump of the United States threatened postponing an election on Twitter due to alleged problems with mail-in voting. Now this has led to near-universal condemnation from not only the Democratic Party, but also from his own party, the Republicans. Of course this is something that would undermine the electoral system, and also something that Trump doesn't have the power to do. He would need the approval of Congress, the vast majority of which disagrees with this measure. So there's no real possibility that the American election gets postponed. Now the thing here is that there is anecdotal evidence of specific cases where mail-in voting might cause problems, with a few instances of possible fraud that get blown up in the news cycle. However, if you look at statistics, if you look at relative to the number of votes that are cast, and even in the context of the number of votes that are necessary in order to win a specific state, then electoral fraud through mail-in voting is statistically non-existent. They're around 8 per election, which if you consider the millions and millions of votes that are cast every year, mean nothing and will never change the outcome of an election. There are already 5 existing states with a complete absentee voting system, and absentee voting and mail-in voting are the exact same thing. An important thing to keep in mind here is not to fall for anecdotal evidence. If you have an average of 8 cases per election, it is still a problem that can be reported on, and reporting on it is not a straight up lie. However, making any kind of implication from these single cases is very fallacious. It doesn't consider the overall impact of various systems, and particularly in a situation like coronavirus, where going to the polls might actually endanger people's lives, it's important that we keep all that data in mind, which overall suggests that there are no fundamental problems with mail-in voting. The other thing that Donald Trump has tried to do is appoint one of his key donors to the post office in order to reduce the availability of mail-in voting in several areas. While once again I don't think this would be successful, because the mail-in voting systems are actually managed by individual states, this still does at least give the appearance of a conflict of interest which both harms the president politically and also harms the reputation of the United States as a whole. The most important thing that actually comes as a ramification of these few stories is that it inhibits the ability of the United States to call out authoritarianism elsewhere. It is incredibly important to have those social standards, to have those standards against corruption where even the appearance of corruption would result in significant political consequences, essentially making it impossible for anyone to run if they've had these conflicts of interest. Of course, they have become much more normalized in some countries such as the United States and also some South American countries that has led to problems with those governments functioning themselves and has particularly led to problems with them negotiating with other world leaders on issues involving democracy. 
the next story involves a clear case of corruption and of authoritarian presence in the city of Hong Kong. Hong Kong was ruled under a special system, resulting from a contract between Great Britain and China, where Hong Kong was returned to the latter country, with the promise that various democratic norms and civil liberties be kept in that area. However, some of the Hong Kong officials have violated this agreement, have had crackdowns on civil liberties as part of a security law, and in this case undergone an act of clear corruption with the postponing of an election, as well as disqualifying many dissidents who are opposing the current regime. This includes both moderate representatives from the Hong Kong Civic Party, as well as from reformers who are looking to improve democracy in Hong Kong. With regards to this issue, and with regards to other serious human rights issues in China, such as the Uyghur re-education camps, there has been a lack of validity and a lack of political pressure that can actually be put on China because of a lot of these internal problems with the United States. The previous status quo has been that the various Western democracies of the world typically band together to approach issues such as this, issuing mass political and economic sanctions that would be able to significantly harm China's economy. There needs to be a strong political case for this, and while the United States may still have legal restrictions preventing its own corruption, even the appearance of corruption in the United States does nonetheless limit the ability of United States officials to apply this pressure and to convince other Western democracies to follow suit. This is just another example of this happening, but elections were also postponed in Bolivia, as the right-wing government declared that there would be much too high of a risk due to coronavirus. Of course, this government took power after the resignation of Evo Morales after a corruption scandal, and the Movement for Socialism party, which Evo Morales was part of, has been winning in some polls. There has been criticism of this action from Morales, from his party, and some of that party's supporters actually threatened protests on the streets due to this undemocratic action. Now, in the event of a hypothetical crackdown on these protests, and especially on actual election systems from the Bolivian government, there would be much less of a political high ground for countries such as the United States to respond to this because of the undermining of their own elections. This is why it's so important to establish clear standards of anti-corruption, of transparency, and in trust in public institutions domestically, because it is absolutely necessary in order to apply any sort of political pressure in terms of foreign policy. Once again, the United States is such an excellent example of this, as they become increasingly less focused on foreign policy, which is one of the most vital responsibilities of a government, because they've not been able to establish that clear baseline for themselves, for their own domestic politics. And as you can see around the world, whether it be South America, whether it be China, or whether it be in the Middle East, there are significant consequences to this erosion of leadership. The last story of today is something that remains in the United States, but does expose broad political ideas that are important worldwide. It involves how the deaths of prominent political figures should be treated, and follows two people, Republican Herman Cain and Democrat John Lewis. Herman Cain was a former Republican presidential candidate in 2012, and has ultimately died of coronavirus. Many politicians from the Democratic Party, as well as their media allies, have called out Herman Cain for attending a Trump rally and not wearing a mask, which is a possible source of catching the coronavirus. On the other hand, Representative John Lewis is a Democratic representative who was very prominent during the civil rights era. He died of pancreatic cancer, so a cause completely unrelated to the pandemic, and there were eulogies at his funeral by Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush. The political ramifications here, however, involve the criticism that many political figures have faced for using these deaths in order to draw political messages. 
There is a social custom, particularly in Western countries such as the United States, to avoid politicizing various deaths out of respect for the family and giving them time to grieve, or just not taking advantage of people's legacy. However, there are important differences that we want to draw, and we do have to solidify the broader media implications of this. With regards to Herman Cain, in my opinion, his death should not be used to push a political message, especially one that actually personally targets him. Of course, it is true that going to a crowded indoor area while not wearing a mask does increase the chance of catching coronavirus. However, especially since the political message that gets drawn from that is something that could be harmful for his family, as well as the fact that this is essentially anecdotal evidence and the broader message of wear a mask and avoid large crowds can easily be spread without invoking Herman Cain himself, means that a lot of this does undo personal damage for no real reason. John Lewis is a different case, since some of the things that were pushed for at his funeral with regards to the eulogy that Barack Obama gave were things that John Lewis agreed with, much of which was confirmed by a posthumous op-ed that John Lewis wrote and was published in the New York Times. Particularly if there was consent from the family of John Lewis, then continuing to push the same messages that he fought for would not be something that would be necessarily a negative thing. However, the broader problem here is the need to use these pivotal, emotionally charged moments in order to create change in politics. Particularly in the second case, it's the unfortunate truth that the death of political leaders is often something that's necessary in order to advocate for a political position that in many less toxic media environments could otherwise be pushed forward without needing to invoke a death. As I talked about in a previous episode, the use of this emotional type campaigning is often shorthand, is often reductionist, compared to a lot of the more constructive arguments that could be made. This is once again a case of not having enough media oxygen, of having a media ecosystem that is resistant to fact-based argumentation, and that greatly prefers these more anecdotal arguments for a given policy or a political view. In short, given the world we live in, particularly for politicians in the United States, I don't think it's necessarily taboo to use the death of a prominent civil rights figure in order to push for some legislation that he was also in favor of. However, the goal that we should all be aspiring to is to create a media infrastructure where this is not necessary, where the frame of politics is taken from a constructive standpoint, where those solutions and the outcomes of those solutions are carefully studied and explained, and where we don't need to use these deeply personal moments in order to get the attention we need to promote some of those more logical policies. With that aspiration in mind, this is the end of the episode, and I'm going to do the same thing I do every episode, where I tell you to like, comment, subscribe, and share on social media. Remember, if you want a better world, then you better contribute to doing it, and the easiest way to do that takes essentially no effort at all is just to share this podcast to educate more people, tell your friends and family, and help them understand what's happening in the political world around them. If we all do that, if we gain the understanding of the political system, then we'll be able to create a better, more transparent world for all of us, whether you're left or right or center.